We'll go ahead and get started and we'll open up with a word of prayer and uh, get on with our class where we're starting Proverbs chapter 9. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for those that have gathered and have been able to come out today to be with us to uh, study your word. I pray a special blessing upon the reading and teaching of your word that you would just uh, anoint my thoughts and my lips. And Lord, help me to speak and teach the truth with, uh, with clarity and uh, to remain focused. And uh, Lord, bless those who couldn't attend for whatever reason, whether it be a prior commitment or you know, uh, an emergency or things just coming up, but um, just bless them and protect them and keep them safe and help them to get their situation rectified so that they can come back and be with us here again. And uh, Lord, just bless everyone who's here. Uh, special blessing upon them as, as, they, as they learn and help them to open up their hearts and their minds to be able to hear and to receive and to uh, process and to assimilate and to apply the word to their life. And Lord, we love you and we praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. And the memory verse for chapter 9, we'll just go ahead and review before we jump into the lesson. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And that's Proverbs 9, 10. So again, just to recap, Proverbs 8 and 9 is almost like a three-act play. And uh, Proverbs 8 was, was the vast majority of it was wisdom's monologue minus the introduction the first three verses was the narrator of this three-act play so wisdom had a lot to say in chapter eight and she still has a lot to say in chapter nine and we begin with the narrator and it moves right on into uh, uh wisdom's monologue and we have a new person in this three-act play and it's just a little speaking part just two verses uh, but it's the opposite of wisdom. It's folly. So folly is also portrayed as a female character in this three-act play. So chapter 9 begins act 2 of this play. And the first three verses is the, is the narrator. So we'll just go ahead and read those. Then we'll break them down. It says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. And so right there, the narrator stops speaking. And in verse 4, Wisdom picks up on her monologue, uh, her very short monologue before the narrator jumps in again. So the very first verse, Wisdom has built her house. The word built in this uh, passage means to establish, to build up, to restore, which is interesting, to set, and also has been used in certain verses to mean to make children. And if you think of a house, you can't have a house without children because the children are going to be the future household. It's going to be the future lineage of that house. Now, we think of a house as a building, but back in the day when you said, I'm from the house of so-and-so, you were talking about your family. You were talking about your lineage. And a lot of times in Scripture, when it says the word house, that's what it means. It means the family lineage, the tribe, or the clan. So it says, wisdom has built 
her house. So it's as if wisdom is the matriarchal patriarch, if you will, the leader of this house. And all of her children come from her, so therefore she wants all of her children to be wise. So the way that a woman builds up a house is to have many children. The way a rabbi or a teacher uh, builds up a following or a congregation is to have many students. And that's how a, a teacher or a rabbi or a pastor builds his house, so to speak. And so it says, wisdom has built her house. So not only is the, is, is the people that are in her house her children, uh, her sons and daughters, uh, but they're also her students as well. And so this is almost kind of, uh, kind of reflecting back upon the writer of Proverbs, which is Solomon, and he is the author of the vast majority of what's called the wisdom literature in the scriptures, such as Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Um, so Solomon, his house is full of prince, princes, and um, you know they're going to be the future kings, ambassadors, judges, and rulers uh, of, of, of the kingdom. So he is speaking to his house in this verse as well. So wisdom has built up, established, or restored. And uh, so that just kind of goes to show you that a house can be built, but at the same time, a house can be destroyed. And there's another passage in Proverbs I can't recall right off the bat or remember right off the bat. But it says that a wise woman builds her house and a foolish woman tears down her house with her own hands. So you can build up a house or you can tear it down by what you, by the example you give, by what you teach, by what you preach, by what you portray, by what you deem as important. So um, sometimes a house needs, needs to be built in the sense of being restored. There needs to be a restoration. And actually, over the past couple of years, that's what our church has been, been going through. Our church is well established. And I think it was probably the first month I was your pastor, the Lord gave me a dream. And I was in the sanctuary, and there was a big hole in the sanctuary, and I could see right down to the basement. And what the Lord showed me is that the foundation was solid. It, it, was, it was this solid concrete. It was painted a nice color, and it was, had that gloss, that, that, that coating over it to protect it, and it was solid. There was no flaws in it. So the Lord was saying, the church has a solid foundation. You just have to rebuild the house. There's a rebuilding process that needs to be, needs to be made. So we can kind of apply that to this verse too. Wisdom has built, established, restored, set up her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. The word hewn means to cut or means to engrave. And so there's kind of a, like, a, like an idiomatic meaning behind this word hewn, which means to cut or to engrave. It, it's what we say today is when something is set in stone. When something is set in stone, it means it's permanent. So way back before they were able to perfect making paper, uh, they used clay tablets or they used stone, and they would chisel in what they wanted to record on that stone. And a lot of times these stones were used as official documents to, to show that uh, the sell of a property or, or something of this nature or some kind of legal uh, dictate that was given, it would be put in stone. And it's interesting, too, that uh, you know, the Lord used this culture uh, to establish his word because some of the first words that were ever established by God were written in stone by his very finger on the two stone tablets 
that are the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. So God's law is set in stone, right? And so I think that's sort of, in a way, what is sort of being implied here uh, as a hint or as a remez, as it said in Hebrew. Wisdom has built her house, and she has hewn out, she has cut, she has engraved, she has set in stone her seven pillars. So in other words, what wisdom is saying and what wisdom is teaching and what wisdom is bringing out is non-negotiable. It's set in stone. You can't change something that has been engraved in stone without destroying it. You would have to crack it, break it up, or you would have to chisel off the words and make it blank. But then you've ruined the stone and it's of no good use anymore. And even Moses, when he saw that the children of Israel was committing not only idolatry, but sexual immorality in worshiping the golden calf, he was, he was righteously indignant and he threw the stones down. Now, it's interesting. The very first set of tablets, God himself hewned out and said he wrote with his very finger. And you know, like as a little kid, uh, you'd always get warned when you go into a store, especially to the fancy parts of the store where there's a lot of breakable stuff. Sometimes they would have signs saying, you break it, you bought it. Right? Have you ever heard that? If you break it, you bought it. And so that's almost the way that the Lord said to Moses, like, hey, you broke it, you bought it. I hewned out the first set of tablets, and here you destroyed them and turned them to rubble. You hewn out two more tablets. I'm not doing it again. You hewn out two tablets, bring them back up to the mountain, and I'll write on them just as I wrote upon the first. And you know, those tablets are somewhere. They're still in existence. Because the Word of God tells us that they're in the Ark of the Covenant. But we don't know for sure where the Ark of the Covenant is. There's a lot of theories, wild theories out there. And I have my own theory from the things that I've researched and studied. Um, according to some scholars, the way the temple was built, the Temple Mount, uh, there were two pillars. And I forget what their names in he what their names are in Hebrew. Uh, Joktan was one of them, and there's a name for another. But anyways, there were these two pillars in the temple. And there's two different measurements of these pillars in the scripture. So somebody would say, oh, well, see, the Bible's full of contradiction. They can't even get the measurements of the pillars of the temple right. But one measurement was taken when the temple was first built. The second measurement was given after the temple had been ransacked. So what, what they discovered is that these pillars were hollow. Because Solomon had married into the Egyptian royalty, into the Egyptian family, he was privy to a lot of the secrets and engineering techniques of the Egyptians, and they perfected what is called sand hydraulics, where they used weights and counterweights and sand uh, to be able to create uh, lifts and elevators and, and different things like that. So what they believed is that, uh, that these pillars were filled with, with sand, and there were these capitals on the top. And when the sand hydraulic system was initiated, the sand would, would leave the pillars and it would cause the columns, the capitals on the columns to shrink. And what that did was to activate a false floor within the Holy of Holies. And a false floor would, would reveal a tunnel. And they took the most important artifacts, such as the Ark of the Covenant, down in this tunnel, and there's a tunnel connecting the Temple Mount that goes under the Kidron Valley and under the mountain uh, of, of, of Calvary, of Golgotha. So it is believed that when Jesus died on the cross, 
Remember it said there was an earthquake and the earth split open? That there was the special hiding place for the Ark of the Covenant underneath Mount Calvary. And when Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed and the, and the, the, the uh, rocks rent and split open because of the earthquake, that that blood trickled down that crack and actually hit the mercy seat of the Ark, which was underneath. Because on Yom Kippur, what did they do with the goat's blood and the bull's blood? They took it in and sprinkled it on the mercy seat, right? That would be an, uh, if that's true, and if that's really factual, that's an awesome fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, so pillars, something that kind of got off track, but hopefully that was, was profitable and interesting for you. But it says that wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Why seven? Seven, we know, is the number of perfection. It's very symbolic. There were seven lights on the uh, menorah in the tabernacle and temple. There's seven days in, in a week. You know, seven means holy. Seven means complete. So there's a lot of symbolism. But seven pillars. I believe that these seven pillars have names. That these seven pillars can be traced back to the seven attributes of God. Um, let me see if I can find a passage really quick. It just came to mind. It's in Isaiah. I might be wasting my time here, but I'm going to try to find it. The Lord allows me to remember that passage there. Uh, okay, in Isaiah 11.2. Now, remember in Revelation where it says the seven spirits of God, it talks about the seven spirits of God. Well, that comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The seven spirits of God are actually named in Isaiah eleven two. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So here, the seven spirits that are mentioned in Revelation are uh, actually named in Isaiah 11.2. Now, there, are, there is what's called the seven attributes of God, which is mentioned in rabbinic literature. And it's very possible that these seven pillars could be referring to either the seven spirits of God or the seven attributes of God. And the seven attributes of God are sort of similar to the seven spirits. The seven attributes of God is wisdom, which in the Hebrew is the word chokhmah. The, uh, the uh, attribute of understanding, which is the Hebrew word binah. And the third pillar is the, uh, is, it, it, there's several translations. It could, be, it could be power, it could be strength, or it could actually be the word judgment. But the Hebrew word is gavura. Gavura. So you have wisdom, understanding, and strength. And four, you have um, you have loving kindness, or sometimes it's called mercy. The Hebrew word is chesed. Uh, the fifth pillar is glory, sometimes translated as honor, but it's the word hold. And then number six is uh, endurance, also sometimes <laughs> called victory, but it's the Hebrew word netzach. And number seven is beauty and or compassion, which is the Hebrew word tefrit. 
So these are the well-established, well-known seven attributes of God that is brought out in rabbinic Judaism. And the rabbis say that with these seven things, God created the entire universe. With wisdom and understanding, with strength, with kindness, with glory, with endurance or victory, with beauty, he used those things to create to create the universe, to create the world. So it says, wisdom has built her house and hewn out her seven pillars. So I believe that these seven pillars could either be referring to the seven spirits of God, which is mentioned in Isaiah 11 too and in, in Revelation, or it could be referring to the seven attributes of God, which are almost identical, virtually identical. Um, but if you think about these things, um, it, it brings about the, it brings about, you, you have to have balance. Wisdom has hewn, or wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, these seven attributes of God, the rabbis say, are have to be balanced out. Because you have many opposing attributes here. On the one hand, you have uh, you have uh, loving kindness, chesed, but on the other hand, you have judgment, which is gevorah. These are almost opposite. But yet you have to have both of those. It's like you have the extremes of both spectrums. So these seven attributes have to be balanced out. And if you'll imagine a scale, you know, with the two arms and, and, and the two plates at the bottom, and the fulcrum in the middle would be justice or holiness. Justice and holiness would be the fulcrum. That's what gives the balance. So on the one hand, you have gavura or strength or judgment and all the things that, all the attributes that are like that, what we would deem the negative attributes. Then you would have on the other side, chesed or loving kindness or mercy, which uh, in all the positive, what we would call the positive attributes of God on the other side, they have to balance each other out. So you have to have holy holiness and justice to be able to balance out uh, judgment and love. If God was, was a God of wrath, and that's all he was, which he has every right to be that because we sinned, we went against his word, we went, went against his commandment, we broke the royal law, we broke the God's divine law. So if, if God was all judgment, then it doesn't matter what, everybody goes to hell. Everybody. Everybody's going to be destroyed and wiped out, no matter who, no matter what. But on the other hand, if God is a God of love, because we read that in 1 John, but if that's all God was, was just all love, then it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You could be a serial killer. You could be a rapist. You could be whoever, whatever. doesn't matter. God loves everybody. Therefore, everybody goes to heaven. God is a God of love. See how off balance that would be? It doesn't work that way. God's holiness balances out his attributes where one attribute doesn't overpower the other, and everything is in balance. It, yeah. It's a difference between fairness and equity. Do you know? Do you know the difference between fairness and equity? Let's say, let's say that, uh, let's say that there was a fence, and over that fence was a baseball game. And there's these, there's three guys that are wanting to watch this baseball game, but they're not all the same size. You have one that is really super tall, like Ron, and he steps on that. And there's three boxes in front of this fence. So he steps on this box, and he's able to see over the fence, but he's really, really tall. He didn't really need the box. And then you have a guy who's kind of, you know, kind of um, in the middle. He's, 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 he's a fairly decent height. You know, he might uh, be tall, you know, as tall as I am. 
But yet, he steps on the box, and he's only just tall enough just to put his head to see over that fence to see the baseball game. Then you've got a short guy, maybe like Mike Chase, right? He's short, but yet he stands on the box, and he still can't see over the fence because he's not tall enough. But yet, it's fair. That's fair because everybody has one box. Everybody can stand on that box, so everybody gets the same thing. It's fair. That's not equity. That may be fairness, but that's not equity. Equity would be if you have those three boxes and you get the real short guy, you give him two of those boxes. You give Mike Chase two of those boxes, then he's able to stand and see over that fence. You get somebody like me, all I need is one box, and I could see fine. But somebody like Ron, he doesn't need a box. He gave his box to Mike so he can see. So Ron is just standing there, and he can see. That's equity. See the difference there between fairness and, and, and equity? People say, well, God's not fair. God is, God is a God of equity. It's not that he just, you know, we get all the same thing in the, in the sense that we all have the same opportunity for salvation. But, you know, he gives us what we need and what we deserve. He makes everything equal, equity, not necessarily what we would deem as fair. And see, that's kind of the problem with communism. Communism claims that everything is going to be distributed equally and fairly. But not everybody has the same needs. You know, so fairness really doesn't work. Some person may need more than another person, and some person may need less than another person because of circumstances and health and situations. What needs to be done is equity, and communism is about fairness, not equity. Capitalism, if you work hard and you apply yourself, you have a chance for equity. It's not a perfect system, but it's way better than communism. So wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. All right, verse 2, she has prepared her food, she has mixed her wine, she has also set her table. So what do you think, could be, what do you think is being spoken about here? Okay, wisdom we already know is like, a, like the ruler of a household. She's like the, the matriarch of this household where she has children and or students that she's raising up. And she has these non-negotiable rules, non-negotiable things that you go by, which are called the seven pillars. That's what holds up her house. You take any one of those pillars away and the whole house is going to collapse, right? You know, it's like a home, like in the basement. In my basement, there, you know, there's, a couple, there's a couple pillars. They're weight-bearing pillars. If I wanted to redo my basement, I could not mess with that pillar without the floor caving in of the upper two floors because it's bearing the weight of what's above it. It's a weight-bearing pillar. And so these seven pillars are necessary in Wisdom's house. They're weight-bearing pillars. Remember the story of Samson? When he was... I just read that. Yeah. You know, when he was captured and he was blinded and, you know, he was in the, in, in the pagan temple and he was asked to be able to be up against two pillars to support himself, but he had a plan. He says, Lord, give me strength one last time so I can destroy my enemies and take vengeance or, or you know, uh, on my two eyes. 
And those two pillars he was against was weight-bearing pillars, and the entire temple fell. And he killed more people in that moment than he did throughout his entire life. And he slaughtered a lot of Philistines. So these seven pillars are like weight-bearing uh, pillars of wisdom's house. These are like non-negotiable rules that wisdom is teaching. So we go to verse 2, and it says she has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. So it's, she's giving a banquet. And this is, spiritually speaking, this is regarding the good teachings of wisdom. Because the Bible is, is, is referred to as spiritual food. When you're a baby Christian, you drink the milk. You get the simple things of the Word of God. When you mature, Paul says you graduate to meat. And people that are teaching should already be chewing on the meat of the word and not drinking the milk of the word. You're past that. Right? So this is, this is, what, this is what wisdom is talking about. She's talking about her teachings that it's like a banquet, like a meal. And the word of God has also been compared to honey. Remember, a lot of times the word of God came to a certain prophet and, and, and the, the word of God gave the prophet a scroll, said, eat the scroll. It'll be sweet as honey in your mouth and it'll make your stomach bitter because of the heaviness of, of, of what the word of God sometimes is all about. So it's been referred to and likened unto food many different times. Even Yeshua himself, the living word, he says, I am the living bread. I am the bread of life. And he also says, I am the living water. So he refers to himself as bread and water. He is, Jesus, Yeshua, is the living manifestation of the written word of God. The written word of God is our spiritual food. And Yeshua even likens himself into food. Even when, during the Passover Seder, the Last Supper as it's called, the Passover Seder, he says, this bread symbolizes my body which is given and broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And, and he said, the wine represents the, the, the renewed covenant in my blood. So we see this analogy, analogy all the time, continuously throughout the Bible regarding the word of God as spiritual food. And so that's what's being said here. It says she has prepared. The word prepare actually means slaughtered. So by this word prepare, we know that there's going to be meat at this banquet. There's going to be some heavy-duty wisdom laid out at this banquet. Yours says meat? Interesting. Yeah, the Hebrew word, it means slaughtered. So the word prepared, slaughtered. When you slaughter something, you butcher it, you dress it, you prepare it, uh, you make it consumable for a banquet. You cook it, you do whatever you need to do to make it right to serve that where it's consumable. So she has prepared her food and she has mixed her wine. Mix means to pour, to mingle. And it kind of reminds me of, of like uh, specialty drinks. A lot of times you'll go to a bar and there'll be a bartender who has went to school to become a mixologist. They know all the different kind of, of alcoholic beverages out there and they know exactly how to mix them to make special drinks. And they all have special names and they all taste differently or whatever. And this is kind of, you know, the, the, the visual that we're getting here that she has mixed her wine. She, is, she isn't just serving pedestrian wine or, or the, the wine you get out of a box at NB Liquor. She's serving good wine, wine that has been mixed, wine that is special. And a lot of times back in the ancient times, they would add things to wine to make it special. Like they would add cinnamon or add certain spices to the wine. And that's what's being said here. She has prepared her food and she has mixed her wine. And wine is very symbolic and important 
uh, in, in Judaism and in the scriptures. And a lot of times wine represents joy. It represents joy. It also represents bravery and strength. Because it said that when you, dr when you drink some wine, you know, you become cheerful. And God has given us wine in order to be cheer cheerful. But you drink enough wine and you become bold and brave because sometimes the effects of alcohol will have that. It will make you feel invincible. But if you have too much wine, this is not in the scripture, but this is actually a rabbinic saying. If you have too much wine, then you'll become like a monkey. And if, and, and if you have more wine, you'll, you'll go beyond being like a monkey and you'll be like a pig. Vomiting all over yourself and rolling around in your own filth or whatever. So everything in moderation. And even the Apostle Paul told Timothy, take a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. So wine is not only for pleasure. You, you, you get joy from it. It's not only a, a liquid courage, as we would say, where it kind of makes you brave. But it's also medicinal. And we know wisdom is medicinal. Wisdom gives us joy. Wisdom gives us bravery. But also wisdom is medicinal. It brings healing spiritually to our souls and to our spirit. So that's, you know, when it says she has mixed her wine and maybe certain mixes of certain wines it affects the body in certain ways and does certain things. It's kind of like oil. In the Bible, when it says, you know, uh, when you anoint somebody who's sick with oil, well, we just use olive oil. But I'm convinced from what I've studied that it's not the same kind of oil that you use all the time. What they used to anoint the Levitical priest was a different mixture of oils than what was used to anoint kings of Israel. And then there's certain oils that were used for certain maladies and certain ailments. And I spent about a year studying essential oils. And I know that there's certain oils that are used for certain things. There's certain oils that are good for when you're sick, when you've got a bacterial infection, when you've got a viral infection. There's some that are good when you have a toothache. There's some that's good for a headache. There's some that are good when you can't sleep, things like this. So I believe that in the scripture when it says that uh, if any who's sick among you, as the letter of James says, let them call for the elders of, ch of the church and they'll anoint them with oil and pray over them and their sins will be forgiven and all that stuff. I just don't believe it was olive oil. Olive oil is actually a carrier oil for the essential oil. If you use essential oil in its raw state, sometimes it could burn the skin or irritate the skin. You have to uh, use uh, like um, coconut oil or olive oil or some other kind of oil to be a carrier oil for the essential oils. And this kind of reminds me, we're, man, I'm going all over the place today, but this is, this is fun though. I'm, I'm loving it. Like in, in Jonah, some of the translation says that when he left the city that he sat under a plant. Well, some translations say that it was a castor plant. So what do you get from a castor plant? Oil. Castor oil. Castor oil is good for skin irritations and skin lesions. So it says that Jonah was happy when he found this plant and he sat under it. It was not only just for shade because the shade uh, kept him from the burning hot sun that would affect his skin. What was wrong with his skin? It was burned by the acids in the fish's stomach that he spent three days and three nights in. So when he was vomited out by this fish, he, his skin was probably blotched and bleached because being a Hebrew, he was darker skin than we are. So he probably had white patches all over and he just looked a mess. And it was and it was his skin was very tender and very, very um, 
uh, it hurt, and especially if the sun affected it. So he was happy for the shade, but I bet you he was thinking in the back of his mind, you know what? I can, I can extract oil from this castor plant and use it on my skin to heal my skin. And then what did God do? He sent a worm <laughs> to eat up that plant, and he got irritated by that. So um, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food, and she has mixed her wine. And you, you also think back in, in um, the different biblical narratives, like when God visited Abraham. Remember while he was camped out by the Oaks of Mamre, and God and the two angels came to visit Abraham? What did Abraham do? He, he spread out a banquet for them. He says, go slaughter. I forget what it was. I think it was, I don't know if it was a bull or a goat or a lamb. I, I can't remember the scripture, but, you know, it was meat. There was some meat that he slaughtered. And he said, do it quickly, hurry. He went to Sarah, need some bread. So he, he prepared a feast and a banquet for God and his angels. And so uh, when, when somebody prepares a banquet, it is a symbol of love. It is a symbol of hospitality. And hospitality is one of the chiefest attributes in the ancient world. Because the ancient world, we don't have the conveniences like we have today. Somebody could just, uh, you know, go to a convenience store on the side of the road and pick up a Slurpee and a bag of chips and they're fine. Or, you know, sometimes way back in the day they had the rest areas where it was just restrooms and some water. You can get a drink of water, vending machines or whatever. You could take care of yourself. Back in the biblical times, they weren't anything like that. You depended upon the hospitality of strangers and the hospitality of other people, especially when you were traveling through the desert where you just couldn't, there wasn't vegetation, there just wasn't, you know, watering holes everywhere you looked. So wisdom is, is being very hospitable, being a good hostess. Uh, she's showing her love and compassion and concern. Uh, and this is all symbolized in what she's doing in her teachings. So wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. So basically, it's a full spread. To set means to ordain or to furnish or to put in order. And whenever somebody's having a fancy dinner party, every fork and every knife and every napkin and every plate and saucer and dish and cup is in a certain place. It's very specific. It's ordained. It's ordered. As this word says, she has set her table. She has put it in order. It's not just like, okay, here's pizza. Here's takeout. Here's McDonald's. Just eat wherever you want on the couch or on the floor or wherever. No, it's, it's, it's a formal setting. It's orderly. It's not just chaos and everybody grabs what they want like at a Chinese buffet. This is, this is ordered. And that's what it means by the word set. She has set she has also set her table. Now, the word, uh, now this word table, actually in the Hebrew, alludes to or implies a sacred table or a kingly table. And a lot of pagan religions, they would sacrifice on a sacred table. Uh, in, in, in Judaism, when the temple was destroyed, the Pharisees took over because the Sadducees basically run the temple. And so when the temple was destroyed, they're like, how could we recreate a temple-like atmosphere? 
And they said, we're going to make our homes and our synagogues like the temple, and we're going to order it like the temple. So they always had a sacred table in their home or in the synagogue, and that was the table that the Word of God was spread out on, where the Torah scrolls and the scrolls of the prophets were rolled out on. It was a holy table. It was a sacred table, and that's where you learn the Word of God and learn the teachings. And, and, and like... The sacred table in in all the synagogues and homes were also where they would have the Passover Seder. They would have this ordered type banquet. And that's what's what's being alluded to in this verse. She has also set her table. And uh, verse... And and this also, this banquet, this full spread banquet. I think we could also make an allusion to, like it hints at a wedding. Because in the scripture, we, we hear about the, 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 uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we are called the bride of Christ. And we know that there's going to be a wedding supper at the end of time for us. Because we are, we are the bride of Christ. And I think this is kind of what's being hinted at. Because ultimately, who did we say wisdom is? Wisdom is Jesus Christ. Wisdom was there in the beginning at creation. So wisdom is also, you know, pointing to Christ. And I think that we can bring uh, in, into play in these first three verses, that this is talking also about a wedding banquet, because wisdom wants us to be married to her. Wisdom wants us to be one. And when you're married, you're one. You're of one spirit, one mind, one accord. So I think that that's also uh, uh, what's being alluded to here. Um, okay, verse three. She has sent out her maidens. Sent. This word sent is the Hebrew word that we get the word apostle from. So in other words, these maidens are wisdom's apostles. And what do apostles do? What does the word apostle mean? The word apostle means to be sent out. To be sent out on an errand. To be sent out on a mission. And the apostles of Jesus Christ, their mission was the Great Commission. There were, there were some training sessions. One time Jesus sends out the 12, and another time he sends out 70 of his disciples. And then at the end, at the end of the book of Matthew, and he rose from the dead, he gives the Great Commission and sends all of his apostles out once again with the message of the gospel, the good news, the salvation. And that's what's being spoken of here. She has, uh, she has sent out, she has made apostles of her maidens. Her maidens are her ambassadors. Her maidens are her representatives. And back in this time, if you were from a rich family or a royal family, every queen or every princess or every wife had an entourage of maidens that would serve them and wait on them. And we know at least the name of one of the maidens, that's the servant of wisdom, because we're going to, as we read through chapter 9, uh, we talk, We hear about prudence. Prudence is maybe like the head mistress or the head, uh, you know, uh, the one that leads the other servants, the other maidens. Prudence. She has sent out her maidens and she calls. This word call means to read, to preach, to proclaim, to bid, or to invite. So these maidens... These apostles, these apostolic maidens, if you will, has already been given the instructions, been given the words that they're supposed to say. 
They've been given the invitation or the royal decree, if you will. And sometimes you'll remember, like back in the ancient times, when the king had a message to send to the people, he just could, couldn't get on the radio or national television and give a State of the Union address. He had to send out his, his servants with these royal decrees, and they would be posted in public places or they would be read in public places. And this is kind of the, the, the picture that we get here with Wisdom's Maidens. She has sent out her maidens, and she calls... So basically, this call is an invite to this banquet, an invite to this wedding supper, an invite to be a, to be a, a student of her, to eat at her spiritual table. So it's a proclamation and an invitation that's given. And then it further says, from the tops of the heights of the city. So tops of the heights is an idiomatic phrase meaning high places. And high places were places of worship. So it says, from the tops of the heights of the city. So these are the religious institutions. And it also could imply more of the uh, institutions of, of government or royalty because a lot of times uh, people who were of the government or of the royal court or of royalty, they lived at a higher elevation than the rest of the people, than of the public. She has sent out her maidens and she calls from the tops of the heights of the city. And this is where the narrator ends his speech and verse four picks up uh, where wisdom is about to speak. So I think this is a good stopping point here. And so whenever, whenever, um, Whenever you have something important to say, you, you want to get somebody's attention, you stand on a chair or you stand on a table, you stand at a higher elevation so people are drawn to you, so you get their attention. And this kind of reverts back to verse, uh, verse 1, where it says, Wisdom has built her house and she has hewn out her seven pillars. Actually, the word pillar, another translation of the word pillar could mean platform or stage. So I think that's very interesting, too, because it's talking about an elevated place where you can be seen and attention can be drawn to you. So you people's got your attention, so uh, their, your attention so you can give the message. She has sent out her maidens. Uh, she calls from the tops of the high places of the city. All right, let's go ahead and close out with a word of prayer. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for this time that we have to we can study your word and delve into the nuts and bolts and nitty-gritty of your word uh, thank you lord for the for the depth for the vibrance for the flavor for the deepness the richness of your word and your word is spiritual food it, it, it's different when you're eating a big mac and then you go to a, a fancy restaurant and eat a filet mignon uh you know it, it's 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 different and and you see all these foodie shows where you have people that are eating this fancy gourmet food and they're describing the taste and the and the texture and the robustness of the flavor and and the bouquet of the wine and they're going into great detail about all these things to describe the depth of the food that they're eating we can do the very same thing with your word when we understand the original languages that it was written in we get to we get that 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 robust bouquet if you will of the flavor and of the texture of your word so lord help us to grow 
a fond, a fond appreciation of your word, the deepness and richness of your word that's often just skimmed off the surface and it's just often, you know, a lot of times the word is preached in such a way it's like spiritual McDonald's. It's just so Mickey Mouse and it's just so pedestrian. And, and I think people are tired of that and they want to know the deepness and the richness of your word and the richness of your word. We're tired of the milk and we want the meat. So, Lord, just adapt our teeth and adapt our stomachs to digesting the meat of your word that we may grow stronger and more mature and closer to you and everything that we say and do. Uh, not just for selfish personal gain, but so that we can take what we've learned and be able to raise up and instruct others and pass on our knowledge to the generation that's coming behind us, Lord. And, Father, we love you and we praise you and we give you all the glory for it's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.